Hey, it's Mercedes and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. Behind closed doors, two Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spabor, face trial in China. The two men have been arbitrarily detained for over two years. There are no journalists, no observers, and no consular officials who are allowed to watch their trials. And those trials could conclude in mere hours, almost always resulting in a guilty verdict. On Friday, the Prime Minister criticized China's lack of transparency. China needs to understand uh, that it is not just about two Canadians. It is about uh, the respect for the rule of law and relationships with uh, a broad range of Western countries that is at play uh, with the arbitrary detention and the coercive diplomacy they have engaged in. Joining me now from Moncton, New Brunswick, the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc. Thank you for joining us, Minister LeBlanc. A lot of Canadians very worried about the two Michaels today, very worried about their future, questioning your government's strategy, asking if you should have been tougher, if it's time to get tougher. What are your thoughts on that? Mercedes, obviously, we understand the very real anxiety that Canadians have about this arbitrary detention, uh, a supposed trial, an alleged trial that doesn't meet the basic standard of fairness, of respect for the rule of law. Our government has said from the very beginning that this is an, an unjust and an arbitrary detention. It's the kind of coercive diplomacy that China uh, seeks to engage in, and it's uh, fundamentally opposed by Western democracies, by Canada, by our allies, including the United States. Uh, our government will not stop uh, doing everything necessary to secure their release. The Prime Minister, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, my colleagues are engaged actively and frequently on what is a huge priority for the government of Canada and all Canadians. There are a number of tactics you could take to be tougher with China. For example, you could apply Magnitsky sanctions. You could say we're not going to allow senior members of the Chinese regime to buy property in Canada or houses. We're not going to allow them to send their children to university here. Uh, there, there are a number of mechanisms, including kicking the ambassador out, that your government has taken. But it seems like you really haven't chosen any of those harder lines. Why is that? First of all, uh, we are not ruling out any action necessary, in our view, uh, to secure the release of these two Canadian citizens. Uh, but we also think that the most effective way uh, to make the Chinese government understand that this is an unacceptable and arbitrary detention is to work multilaterally, to work with allies that have shared values, similar interests. Obviously, the United States, we're encouraged by the Biden administration's uh, willingness to support Canada and to insist with the Chinese authorities that these detentions need to end. Uh, so we remain convinced that the most effective way is to work with like-minded allies, with European countries, with the Americans and other countries uh, to secure the release of these two Canadians. But the prime minister, the foreign affairs minister will continue to do what is necessary to bring the maximum pressure on the government in China to release these citizens uh, immediately. And I realize uh, the value of multilateralism, and in particular, there's been discussions about countries like Britain, the UK, Australia, uh, and Canada banding together to take harsher steps against China. 
you say you want to do what's most effective, but do you think your approach so far has been effective? Because there's been no change. They're now at trial and very likely to be found guilty. It's about a 99.9% .9 conviction rate in Chinese courts. And there again, Mercedes, that's a perfect example uh, of why this is not a legitimate judicial process. If the conviction rate is almost 100%, uh, and there's no transparency, there's no access to Canadian consular officials, uh, it obviously doesn't... Uh, it doesn't appear to be in any way a legitimate judicial process. Um, but as we've said from the beginning, our government and, and a lot of these discussions and a lot of these um, these uh, ways in which Canada can bring pressure on the Chinese government and on Chinese authorities are properly done discreetly. Those conversations happen with allies extremely uh, frequently, uh, very frequently. Um, and we'll continue to do so. And as I say, the Prime Minister has made it clear, Mr. Garno, the Foreign Affairs Minister, that we will not stop doing what's, ne uh, what's necessary to secure their release. And we understand the very real concerns that all Canadians share uh, for these two, uh, these two Canadian citizens. I want to ask you about another file, and it's, it's a file that you're directly in charge of over at Privy Council Office. The investigation into sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces, we were promised there would be an external probe. Global News broke the story on February 2nd. We're now past mid-March. We've had no update uh, on where that investigation and that probe might be. What can you tell us about that today, Minister? So, uh, Mercedes, I, we can say, as the Prime Minister has, as the Minister of National Defence has, that our government takes these kind of allegations extremely seriously. Uh, no uh, person uh, should be required to work uh, in a context and certainly in an institution as important to Canadians as the Canadian Armed Forces uh, in a workplace that's not respectful and safe. Uh, we have been obviously very concerned about these allegations. And the Prime Minister and the Defence Minister have said uh, that we recognize the need to have a robust uh, review of these allegations uh, that's expeditious but that's fair. Uh, and we're committed to doing that. And the Minister of Defence and the Prime Minister will have more to say uh, in, in the coming days. Uh, with all due respect, Minister, there's a lot of people who are saying that these are allegations that happened after your government came in, that you say that you're a feminist government. It's not just about the allegations against General Vance or Admiral MacDonald. It's about widespread allegations at the highest ranks. If your government promised better to women of the armed forces, don't you have some accountability here if six years in you haven't seen changes? Mercedes, we have said that changes uh, will be forthcoming. We have said that, and we have shown across the board as a government that these allegations and these circumstances need to be taken seriously and need to be investigated in a serious, robust, independent way. And that's exactly the commitment we've made to the men and women of the Canadian Armed Forces, but obviously across the government of Canada. Uh, and as I said, my colleague, the Minister of Defence, uh, will have more to say in the coming days about specific processes that we think will answer this very real uh, and, and understandable concern of so many people. Do you think your government has failed Canadian troops? Our government recognizes that we all collectively uh, need to look at what more we can do to protect people uh, in the workplace, to protect the women and men who serve in the Canadian Armed Forces. We share the very real concern of Canadians around these allegations, and that's why we're taking them seriously, and we'll do what's necessary to ensure that they're properly investigated.
One last quick question for you, Minister. The Prime Minister traveled to Quebec to announce electric battery plant um, last week. A lot of people wondering if that's a sign. He's starting to travel again. Are you preparing for an election? Uh, we've said, Mercedes, that the government is focused on uh, vaccines, on the public health measures necessary in, in the course of an ongoing pandemic, on economic recovery, on a federal budget that will lay a, a foundation for a robust economic recovery. We're not looking for an election. We're uh, doing what Canadians expect their government to do, is to worry about their health, to worry about their economic security. Uh, the Prime Minister, ministers, my colleagues in the Liberal caucus are very much focused on the ongoing work of the pandemic. That's been our work in Parliament, and that's certainly been our work publicly, and that will continue to be our focus. We're not seeking an election. Minister LeBlanc, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate it. Ladies, have a great day. The two Michaels have been imprisoned for over two years now. Michael Spavor's trial was on Friday, and Michael Kovrig's trial is tomorrow. Canadian consular officials were not allowed to attend the proceedings against Spavor, who is accused by China of stealing state secrets. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has called the charges trumped up. To talk about what is happening next in the shadowy journey of these two Canadians detained in China, we are joined by Kevin Garrett, who spent 775 days in prison in China. Prior to that, he spent 30 years living and working in Dandong province, which is where one of these trials is taking place. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. A lot of Canadians are wondering what's happening behind the closed doors of the court right now. You've been through this process. What are the two Michaels going to experience? What they're experiencing, uh, what Michael Spavor has already experienced, is being uh, taken to the courtroom in shackles and handcuffs. This is exactly what happened to me, going into a very probably dated courtroom. Uh, being a closed trial, just as mine was, means there would be three judges, a couple of prosecutors, his lawyer, a couple of guards, and probably an interpreter as well. He'll be in the center of the courtroom, and he won't have an opportunity really to talk to his lawyer or to say too much. Kevin, in your yeah. case, were Canadian consular officials permitted to be in the courtroom? Uh, no, it was a closed trial, so there are no consular officials. Uh, what I was very thankful for was that uh, a couple of consular officials stood outside the court building all day uh, with my wife, Julia, and a couple of friends, including our, an American lawyer who was working uh, behind the scenes on our behalf. And I was able to glimpse them both going in and coming out of the court building. So although they couldn't see me because the windows of the police van were tinted, uh, I could see them, and that was a huge encouragement. And I understand what I've seen on the news is that the same thing happened with Michael Spavor. There was a contingent of diplomats and uh, media outside. Uh, they all waved to him, and that, that would be a huge encouragement to him. What happens when you're actually going through this trial? It's, it's not like our trials. It was, it was a couple of hours. It wasn't months. Uh, it, it did not proceed over a long period of time. Do you even get a chance to defend yourself? Right. So what happens in the trial is that all the summaries from their uh, six months of interrogation and isolation will be brought into the court and the summary, a summary of the summaries will be presented. So basically, uh, they're just restating what they've the conclusion they've come to, but they really won't have a chance to to give you know, arguments on their behalf. So it's basically already done. Uh, I had very little opportunity to talk to my lawyer. I kept trying to understand what was going on in the court. Uh, my Chinese is okay, but my, the interpreter there didn't translate everything. And um, I, 
I kept asking like, can I say something now? And you know, it was no, no, no. And then yes, you can, but you can't say that. So it was very confusing. And I think it would be much the same for Michael Spavor because I understand his trial was only a couple of hours. And so a lot of it would be procedures they go through and then uh, reading of summaries probably, and then you're over, it's done. A couple of hours sounds like there's already a decision made. It, doesn't China have something like a 99% conviction rate? I mean, this is not really a, a trial in the way that we would describe a trial. 9% conviction rate. And so really, in my opinion, one of my experience is that uh, what they are going through is just a formality to uh, say they followed the law, which they did. They followed their law. And uh, and this is how they do it. So that the the government or the judicial system is always correct in what they do. Uh, so there's no outside influence. Even in the first six months of isolation and interrogation, you have no access to a lawyer or anyone else to help guide you through that process. You only have fear and intimidation. What is the experience of being in prison like in China? Well, in prison in China, as I was there for uh, well, 19 months in an actual prison, and then six months before that, what they call it, referred to as a black jail. And the prison is uh, very basic. You have a wooden cot for a bed, maybe a thin cotton pad on the bed. Uh, there were 13 others in my cell, so 14 of us all together. Very small space, very little space, almost in, in some cots, no space between the beds. An aisle down the middle, so seven wooden beds on either side. And uh, you, you never leave the cell. Occasionally, they let you out into an outdoor court room area or court area, which is right beside attached to the cell. Uh, the only time I really left the cell was a couple times for medical reasons. And then uh, once a month for consular visits, which were 30 minutes and held in a meeting room in the prison itself. What is the emotional experience like of, of going through a trial where you know the outcome? You know you're going to be convicted. It's, it's just a matter of time. You know, I, I sort of had in the back of my mind that I would be convicted. I didn't really fully grasp that at the time. I went in with hope. You know, many people, thousands of people have prayed for me. I was praying and trusting in God and what I was going through and that he had a plan and a purpose in it. But it's still very emotionally uh, upsetting because you, you're not sure. They have threatened me with execution many times during the interrogation period. And I thought, well, they could do that. But I thought, oh, no, they wouldn't. But you go back and forth in your mind because no one's saying no. And uh, even in the trial itself, it's very, uh, really excruciating painful because you're, you're going, you're not knowing what's going on. And for months and months, you had no information of what's going on. And that's the biggest thing, really, is just no knowledge, no information. Uh, you're in a vacuum. You don't know what's happening on the outside world. Some people are wondering, with this moving to the trial phase and the inevitable convictions, although we don't know when we might hear that information, does that make it more or less likely, in your opinion, that it's that it's possible for, for the Chinese government to release these two men in some way that allows them to save face? I think they will move into a, uh, a phase where they will they will be a conviction. So they will come, they will have to go back to a verdict hearing. Both the Michaels will go to a verdict hearing. They'll read out the, in my case, it was eight pages of uh, the verdict and sentenced me to uh, six years in prison. And then uh, 36 hours later, I was uh, deported. So I would, I would hope that something very similar would happen for both the Michaels. Uh, I can't predict that. There's no way I can because it's really up to political situation. I think part of it is up to what happens with Meng Wanzhou uh, here in Canada. And if she gets extradited to the U.S., 
But my prayer and hope is, uh, you know, the Michaels to remain strong, that they see that people are supporting them, that they would be, uh, especially Michael Spavo right now, would be incredibly encouraged by seeing all the people, the media and the diplomats outside the court, and that uh, he would know that people are standing behind him, praying for him, and uh, that he has hope in that. A lot of China experts have criticized the government. They say they haven't been tough enough with China. What are your thoughts on how Justin Trudeau and his government have approached the situation? Uh, I'm glad to see that the Canadian government is taking a, a more vocal and maybe harder stance for the two Michaels. In our case, it was very quiet for the most part. I think the media brought it up many, many times, and that was incredibly helpful. Uh, but I think the Canadian government had been very reluctant to kind of pressure China. I think now with the two Michaels, they are putting more pressure on them and speaking up, being more vocal, making sure it's brought up at every meeting and in the news. And I think that's a good thing. I really like that other countries are standing behind Canada with this, especially the U.S. And, uh, you know, uh, President Biden saying he wants to see the two Michaels released. I think that's incredibly good. I think there's a balance. We can't try to bully China because they will just get their backs up. But I think we have there has to be pressure uh, in front and also behind the scenes. And I think the Canadian government did a lot behind the scenes. Of course, I didn't know what was really going on for those two years. But I, I know that a lot was going on, a lot of private meetings and delicate negotiations. Kevin Garrett, thank you for sharing your time and what can only be an unimaginably difficult personal experience. You're a friend of the show, and we look forward to having you back again soon. Thank you. Anytime. Yeah. And if people want to read more, of course, they can look at our book, Two Tears on the Window, and that will uh, give them an incredibly good, I think, uh, view into the, the whole political system and judicial system in China, as well as just our whole experience. Last week, one of the most well-known and well-respected women in the Canadian Armed Forces decided to resign her commission in protest over the ongoing sexual misconduct scandal and the failure of leadership in this country to address it. Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor, the first woman to lead an infantry company in combat in the Afghan war. Now, two months after Global News first broke the story, people are still asking what the government is going to do about this and whether Canada's troops have been failed. Joining me now to talk about this and some of our other top stories this week, we have the Globe and Mail's Bureau Chief Robert Fife and Global News journalist Amanda Connolly, who's been working with me closely on this story. Thank you both so much for joining us. You know, Bob, we are still waiting to find out what the government is going to do about this. They've promised a probe. They've promised action. By the way, we've asked for uh, the defense minister numerous times on the program. We haven't seen him since very early on on this speaking to us. What does the government need to, need to do in order to protect women who are serving in the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, first of all, let me just uh, hats off to you, uh, Mercedes and Amanda, for just the groundbreaking work that you have done in trying to expose uh, what has happened to women in the armed forces? They, uh, the uh, military has dealt with uh, sexual harassment in the lower ranks, but when it comes to the higher ranks, um, nothing ever seems to be done, and you have broken that dam open, and I think there's going to have to be, well, there will be serious change. The problem we have, uh, Mercedes, is that the government does not want to, and they are going to set up an independent watchdog because the way the current system works, everybody reports to the chief of defense staff. And if he's part of a, a sexual misconduct allegation, nothing 
what woman is going to feel safe coming forward? So they are going to set up a watchdog, but the issue here is who does it report to? If it reports to the defense minister, the guy who won't even show up on your show to talk to you about it, uh, that is not going to work. Every expert in the field says, like the Australians, like the Germans, like the United States, uh, independent watchdog must report to parliament. It is the only way that women are going to feel safe to become to come forward when generals and senior uh, ranking officers sexually abuse them. Amanda, when you look at this, and you've talked to lots of the women and men involved in this as well, you've been very closely covering it. Uh, one of the things I've started to see on Twitter and on social media is soldiers and troops who are frustrated now with the minister. They're starting to link it politically. Does this put the Liberals in political jeopardy, or do you think that they think they can protect and insulate the minister on this? Yeah, you know, I think that's really a big question going forward, and this, this is going to be a big problem for the government. The issue that they have right now, to me, is that you have a government that, that frequently gets caught out saying one thing and doing, or at least appearing to do something different. For a feminist government that has built its brand around that uh, that framing of its uh, support for women and uh, really putting the spotlight on programs and initiatives for women, this kind of um, passing the buck, for lack of a better term here, in terms of who is accountable, what went wrong, is problematic because people really want action right now. I think people have had it. I know you've seen it online. I've certainly seen it in comments and emails and things like that. People really are, are tired of waiting for more studies. They want a solution and they want it now. Bob, the Globe and Mail broke the story that the Prime Minister's office, in fact, did know about the allegation against General Vance back in 2018. The government had been denying that. Do you think that there is, and I get asked this by, by troops all the time, do you think that it's possible that PMO didn't tell the Prime Minister that this was going on, that this was never brought up when they were reconsidering extending General Vance's term and giving him a raise, both of which they did? Well, I don't believe that for a moment, Mercedes, and I know you don't either. Uh, nothing happens in this prime minister's office without uh, the senior people knowing it's a it's all about control. And I cannot imagine that nobody would have whispered in the prime minister's office, including Katie Telford, who's the chief of the uh, his his chief of staff, who had who the prime minister's office has still refused to say whether she was informed of this, uh, that he knew about it. Uh, look, there's no way around this. The only way around this is for uh, the government to set up an independent watchdog so women can feel safe or racial minorities can feel safe or people being discriminated can go to somebody who reports to parliament. Secondly, uh, Sajjan, the uh, Arjit Sajjan, the defense minister has to go. They need to have a, uh, a defense minister, it should preferably be a woman because there is a cultural problem that's going on in D&D. It has to be changed. Your reporting has shown that. And the government has to act. Yeah, and that, it's a tough one for the Liberals because Sajjan is a huge fundraiser for them ahead of a possible election. Amanda, we saw the Prime Minister travel for the first time last week since the beginning of the pandemic to announce an electric battery plant in Quebec. A lot of people are speculating. They now think maybe they're out of the danger zone on the vaccine issue, enough vaccines coming in. What do you think the likelihood is that they're starting to weigh that spring election possibility? Well, I think this is the timeline that we certainly have been watching from the start. You know, once you start to really hit that uh, that spring summer season, all of that election speculation really ramps up. Um, we know that, of course, the go minority governments in Canada really do not tend to go well past that sort of 18 month mark. We're very much in that time frame right now, and so I think for the government uh, weighing that political calculus of um, can we do this safely? Yes, as part of it. 
but also what is the sentiment of people right now around the broad availability of vaccines? Do we have enough people in the provinces and the regions who feel confident broadly that this is being handled well, that they're not going to take that out on the government if we go to the polls right now? That really is, I think, a big open question. You look at a lot of regions that are doing better than others, some that are really lagging behind. And there is, um, I think there's a strong possibility if you're looking at that, that political calculus, that that is, um, there is potential there for that to hurt the government unless things change right now. Bob, the Conservative convention this weekend, uh, everything I'm hearing from the Conservatives and the NDP is they don't really want an election right now, but they think that the Liberals do. Aaron O'Toole has to find a way to distinguish himself if he has any hope in this upcoming election. Before that happens, he's dealing with anger inside the party as he tries to move towards the centre. What does O'Toole have to do to have a chance here if there is a spring or fall election, which seems likely? Well, we are definitely going to have an election this year. It'll either be in uh, June 14th, but I, I'm a little doubtful of that only because I'm not sure enough people are going to have the vaccine in their arms by that time, but certainly in the fall, which would in some ways suit uh, liberal MPs a lot better because the newly elected ones will be eligible for a pension. But that's not the issue. I think the issue here for the, the Conservatives, and uh, we saw from the speech uh, on Friday from Aaron O'Toole, that he's, he's telling the party, we've got to move to the center center-right, because we need to bring in more people in uh, if we're going to get elected. And he's saying, you know, we've lost two elections in the last five and a half years. We've got to ditch this opposition to the carbon tax. We have to recognize the rights of gay and lesbian people. We have to develop uh, economic policies that are going to appeal to the vast majority of Canadians. Uh, I thought his message on Friday uh, was the right message. Uh, and it could mean that we're going to have a competitive, much more competitive election because the, cons the, the liberal strategy always is to try to paint the conservatives as some extremists. And if he can hug that middle, middle ground, he will have a, a serious chance of winning the election. Because let's remember, elections really do matter. Nobody thought that Trudeau was going to win in 2015. Well, we will certainly be keeping a close eye on it. And I know we'll all be very busy trying to figure out if that's where it's going. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Bob and Amanda, for joining us. There you have it. This week's episode all wrapped up. We'll have lots more in store for you next week. So don't go anywhere. Don't miss it. The West Block. I'm Mercedes Stevenson.